good to be together again tonight, to have an opportunity yet again to worship and to praise our God and to study from His Word, which is what we're going to do over the course of the next few moments. Invite you to open your Bibles back to Luke chapter 15, where Derek did such a good job of reading for us in those first six or seven verses, and we're going to explore a couple of additional verses just to make a point at the outset of our study together tonight. We are concluding tonight our study of angels and our attempt to understand them better. If you're keeping count at home, this is the eighth and this is the final installment. Not that we've covered everything that we could cover on the subject of angels, but we have covered a lot of ground. We've talked about the relationship between angels and Jesus. We've talked about guardian angels. We've talked about the devil and his origin. We've talked about the roles of, uh, of angels and the important messages that they delivered in the Old and New Testaments. And so tonight I want us to spend our time simply talking about now and later. What are the roles of angels today in 2022? And some might rightly say that I'm not sure that I can definitively say what the roles of angels are today. And I would agree with you to a point. I do think there are some passages that maybe if you look at, you can say, I think there may be some activity among angels today. And there, there may be some things that we disagree on in the course of the things that we talk about tonight. But hopefully we can not be disagreeable in our disagreements. But I think we'll come to a, a good series of conclusions on the subject of angels now and later. I want us to start with the idea that it matters that we talk about this particular subject. We learn a lot about angels and their history and their work during biblical times. But the question for us is tonight, what about today? That's really the, the thesis of the argument that I'm establishing. And that is, we know that angels played a role in the history of the life of Jesus and assisting him with Sodom and Gomorrah and talking to Abraham and rescuing Lot. But what about that subject? This subject matters today for a couple of reasons. One of those is that people, and I've said this throughout the course of this series, and one of the re reasons that I uh, approached this series is because people are interested in the subject of angels. You will find that people who are not necessarily religious or churchgoers or Bible students, they know about angels and they believe in angels. More people believe in angels than certainly believe in the existence of hell, for example. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that the Bible addresses these highlights and disagreements on the issues. Well, we won't take the time to go back and read in Acts 23, but you remember there that there were people in the first century who were arguing about whether or not angels existed and what were their roles. And here we are 2,000 years later, and still people are debating what their roles are or the various aspects of how they are uh, involved in the lives of human beings. It seems to me that at the outset of our study, we need to acknowledge that there are two what I would call extreme positions on the subjects that, uh, uh, that are inappropriate. One is that angels are not active at all. That's an extreme. Angels have done their work in biblical times. They're done and it's over. And no more do angels have any sort of role, whether that be here on earth 
or whether that be in heaven. And just from what we read in our study together tonight at the outset of our time together, it seems to suggest that that probably is an inappropriate conclusion to draw. And just as much as that, that angels interact with and they direct every aspect of life. That's the kind of the polar opposite extreme. Somewhere in the middle is probably the reality. And generally speaking, extremes are not good to be uh, associated with when it comes to studies like this, that angels are probably not directing every aspect of your life. There are some that would suggest that God is orchestrating every event of my life and that his angels are participating in everything that I do, where I go to work, where I go to eat, the choices that I make. Know that we have a free will that we get to explore those particular things. I would suggest to you that based on scripture, angels are active today, at least in three definitive or specific ways. And I want to talk about those three before we talk about providence. And then we're going to talk about are there angels among us? And we'll conclude with a kind of difficult passage in one of Paul's Corinthian letters and then draw this all to a close and hopefully do so in a nice way. One of those is we need to acknowledge that angels are apparently, based on Scripture, active today when an erring Christian repents. We read Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. If you go back and read the next parable, although it is interesting that Luke 15 records this as one parable, we look at this as three separate parables. They all have a relationship, but Jesus is speaking a parable, but in parable 2 or section 2 of parable one, depending on how you define the parables, it says, what woman having 10 silver coins loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until what? Until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls all of her friends and her neighbors. And she says, rejoice with me for I have found the peace, which I lost these days. Maybe it's, uh, I've lost my glasses and I found them on top of my head or uh, losing your keys, losing your wallet is the worst Uh, going through airport security and then saying, where did I put my license? Where are my keys? Where's my belt? Where did all the things you have to go through? He says that when you find those things, there's this sense of relief or joy, and especially something as valuable as this piece of jewelry that may have had some connotation with her marriage status. And so it says, likewise, I say to you, and verse 10 is slightly different than verse 7, where verse 7 says there is rejoicing in heaven. Verse 10 says specifically, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It stands to reason that this joy is also associated when a new Christian is uh, comes into existence. And so we say, uh, and I think rightly so, that when someone is baptized into Christ, we say we are rejoicing with the angels in heaven. And that's not just a catchphrase. That is something that we legitimately believe, that when someone comes up soaking wet, a new child of God, or when someone comes home and says, you know what, I've not been living as, as righteously as I should have been. We are the ones who are crying tears of joy. We are the ones who are hugging one another and the angels are cheering as well. I have no reason to believe that that is not something that still happens today, 2,000 years after Jesus spoke this particular parable 
about the subject of angels rejoicing in heaven. Furthermore, we see that angels seem to have some sort of a role in what I would call heaven-based worship. I want to look at two passages here in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, and then Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 7, in the book of Revelation, we get a, a glimpse uh, the curtains pulled back and revealed as to what heaven looks like and what it will look like for us. But in verse 11, it says, All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. We, in fact, sang about that in High Above This Seraphim tonight. Fell on their faces and they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Incidentally, if you count in verse 12 the various things that are rendered to God, it's blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. It's a full seven, which in the book of Revelation, numbers matter a lot. And it seems as if this is a full-throated praise of God, that it is complete in every aspect. Then drop down to chapter 19 and verse 10 to a passage that is uh, we've made reference to a time or two in this series. It says, see that you do not do that. Don't worship me. I am your fellow servant. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And we made reference to that in one of our studies earlier in this series. So angels are present and involved when someone is in error and repents. Angels are seemingly, at least as I understand it, are busy at this very moment worshiping our God in heaven in his domain. And then thirdly, angels are still active today, at least it seems to me, based on the text that we're going to read here in just a moment, when a saint dies. Now, there's been some speculation, and there's been healthy debate, and you can land on whether you believe it is uh, parable or not, as to whether or not Luke 16 is indeed a, a true story. Uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Some suggest that Jesus is merely telling a story, a parable. Some suggest that this is a real event. Uh, the fact that Luke or and or the Holy Spirit doesn't identify it as being a parable seems to me to suggest that there's some reality to this particular story. And so we can take it at face value. And certainly we know that there were people uh, who were very rich and people who were very poor in the first century, much like the rich man who is unnamed and Lazarus, the poor beggar who is named. But drop down to about verse 22. And I think some of the least appreciated words in all the book of Luke, and that is in verse 22. It was when the beggar died, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's a beautiful concept to me, that when a saint dies, the angels come down and they say, let us gather him up or her up and carry them away to paradise. Sadly, verse 22 is a two-sentence verse because you notice what is written in 22 part B. It says the rich man also died and he was buried. That's sad to me. 
And we get to choose whether or not angels will come down and rescue us and gather us to a place of paradise or Abraham's bosom. It is also important to note very briefly here at the outset of our study before we delve into the concept of providence that angels will be important when the Lord returns. We won't take the time to read the passage that we've read recently in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And the fact is, is while not much is said of the archangel, knowing that angels are messengers makes perfect sense that the Lord is going to come with the shout of an angel. They are here announcing his return, that he comes in the clouds and that we will meet him in the air as 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 seems to teach us. But I want us to spend uh, the next section of our time talking about the concept uh, that is also somewhat controversial. You may find that uh, it's it's surprising that the whole subject of, of providence is controversial in some religious circles. I have uh, come across a few uh, members of the Lord's church, and that doesn't mean that they uh, are wrong, that have real qualms with the idea of providence, although the word providence does have the word provide in it. And so the idea of God providing through ways, including but not limited to the uh, agents of angels, Seems to, seems to me to be something that is worth exploring. The fact is, is what God controls or how much he controls is a mystery that no one can describe for sure. Uh, we know that God is behind the scenes. We know that he provides us with free will to make our choices. That is different than what some in the religious world on certain extremes would teach in that everything that I am doing, God controls in my life. Well, that's, that seems to be, not seems to be, that is uh, in error uh, and not in tune with what the scriptures teach because we get to choose for ourselves what we are going to do. We do, however, know, and I put that in capital letters, that God has controlled things in the past wherein providence was real, where he says, I want to make these things happen in a particular way or fashion, while not limiting the free will of the persons involved in that particular scenario. And so one of those things that we need to appreciate is that on at least two big occasions, he used angels as part of his providence. And you can probably already begin to think about some of those Old Testament and New Testament stories. One of those is back in Genesis 24 in finding Isaac a wife. In Genesis chapter 24, I want to read not all eight of those verses, but just a couple just to get uh, the story uh, reminded in in our minds. This is where Abraham was very old and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things, verse 1 says. And Abraham says, please put your hand under my thigh. I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. And then in verse 5, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? He says, beware that you do not take my son back there, verse 6. And verse 7, the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, to your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall 
take a wife for my son from there. Drop down to verse 13 where it says, Behold, here I stand by the well of the water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink. This is, this is one of the ancient pickup lines that uh, we see in, in Old Testament literature. Uh, you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. It happened before he had finished speaking that Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. The young woman was very beautiful to behold. She was a virgin. No one had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. Now notice what happens in verse 17 through 21. Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. Drink, my Lord. She quickly let her pitcher down to her hand, gave him a drink. When she, uh, when she had finished giving him a drink, I will draw water for your camel, camels also until they have finished drinking. And she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, drew for all of his camels. We're familiar with this story, verse 21. And the man wondering at her remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. What's verse 21 saying there? Is God working in this particular scenario for me? Then drop down to verse 27. Blessed... Be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And so that word led me is the idea of provided for me and engaged me and provided for the future of the, of the, of the choice that I was going to make. There's a second example, and there, there are others that we could reference, but one of those is in the death of Herod in the book of Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 23. This is an interesting text, and if you look at the secular history side of this text or the Jewish um, uh, histories of this text, you find some really interesting things that are out. That's beyond the scope of our study together tonight. But, look, but go over to Acts chapter 12, and I want to read four verses here in Acts chapter 12. You remember what happened? Herod was this very important figure, and people were used to praising him and giving him all this adoration, and, and he was apparently used to accepting it, or at least he enjoyed it on this particular occasion, perhaps more than others. It says that Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord and having made blastus to the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by, their, by the king's country. So on a set day, on this particular day here in verse 21, the text says that Herod was arrayed in his royal apparel and he sat on his throne and he gave an oration he didn't give a speech. He gave an oration. I always thought that was kind of interesting. We, a speech is an oration. Oration is a speech. But when you say oration, it just sounds more, uh, more promising, more uh, pompous. Uh, and so he gave this oration. And the people kept on shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. And we can conclude here between verses 22 through 23 that Herod is looking at himself and the mayor is saying, these people have finally figured me out. I truly am a God. And this was, of course, in a culture where people believed uh, their leaders were oftentimes gods. And so immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. I think it's interesting to note here that 
that the angel is not said to be uh, visual. We do not know what it looked like. Again, secular history, the Jewish Talmud talks about this, uh, about it being a, a, a suspicious animal that was involved. Uh, but we know that an angel is the one who took the life of Herod. And this goes back to something that we talked about about five or six months ago, that angels are instruments of God's justice. They are not just those who comfort and help us. They will indeed render judgment on his behalf. As for today, is it possible, and I put that word in quotations, Uh, Is it possible that God uses angels to direct things in human life today? So I'm just going to let you ponder that for five seconds. Is it possible that God uses angels to direct things in human life? And I use the word possible. And I think the answer has to be, is it possible? Yes, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's undeniable. But can angels be used by God as messengers today uh, of comfort uh, to aid in someone's distress in the way that it was done in New Testament times or even in Old Testament times. And of course, the passage that comes to mind for me and probably for you, and David and I were talking about this in a conversation just a few days ago, and without him looking at my notes, he said, what about Hebrews chapter 1? And so uh, great minds think alike, and uh, one greater than the other. I'll let you figure out who's, who's the greater than the other. It's not me. But in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, after going through this long uh, research project where he goes back and he quotes from a half a dozen Old Testament passages, the writer, whoever he was, says, are they not all ministering spirits? These angels who are sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Who is it that inherits salvation? Just the New Testament characters? Just the people who received the the letter to the Hebrews and the Colossians and the Philippians? Well, no. It seems to me that that would belong to us as well. Such that in, in some particular format or form or another, perhaps... And I'm using the word perhaps, that way you can't say, well, you said it was definitive. Uh, But perhaps angels are used by God to minister to us, including through guidance of what we do and what we do not do. Note, if you would, the similarity between this type of what I would call providence and that of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Talk about underappreciated verses. I think Romans 8, 26 and 28 are some of the most underappreciated verses in all the book of Romans. And Brother Kerry and Brother John are again doing a good job of, of dealing with the first half of Romans and they can expound on this more. But I think verse 26 is, is absolutely essential and needs to either be memorized or written out on a post-it note or at least familiar in your mind where he says, likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There's different ways of taking Romans chapter eight, verse 26. There's different subtleties to that and different interpretations. But I've always had the in my mind, that there are times where I might pray to the Father and I do not know exactly what to pray for. I am so confused. I am so distraught. I am so distressed. I am so depressed, whatever word you want to use. And it's as if God says, I've got you. 
You're communicating to me, and I appreciate that, but you are unable to share with me truly how you feel with groanings which cannot be uttered is the phrase used by the Apostle Paul by way of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit steps in and says, I've got this. I can help you with this in ways that are beyond our comprehension. And there have been times in your lives and in the lives of those that we care about where they have been so distraught and you think, how am I going to get out of this? And you look back a year later or two years later or three years later or a decade later and you say, I made it out of that. Is it possible that the Holy Spirit was working on your behalf in groanings which cannot be uttered to help you in that particular process. And very important for us to acknowledge uh, that Jude 3 says that the gospel was delivered once for all. And Galatians 1 says that indeed, no angel is going to teach you something that is new contrary. So uh, that's the caveat to this, right? That, that's, that's the argument that we cannot say, well, an angel came and visited me and, and strengthened me, which potentially could be of, uh, uh, of truth, but delivered a message contrary to the gospel because that violates Jude 3 and Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Well, what about angels among us? Uh, there's a song that came out uh, 20, 30 years ago where the chorus says, I believe that there are angels among us. And there was even a show, Delores on TV a few years ago with angels among us. Hebrews 13 and verse 2 has always been an interesting verse, though the, the more uh, I've studied it and, and the more that I've become familiar with it and the more I've studied the subject of angels, to me it becomes a much clearer verse to understand. Uh, notice the context of Hebrews chapter 13 and remember the context is always uh, like remembering the Alamo. It's an important catchphrase for us. But verse one says, let brotherly love continue. In many ways, be courteous, be kind, like we talked about this morning. And then do not forget to entertain strangers for by doing, for by so doing, the New King James Version, some have unwittingly entertained angels. The King James says angels unaware, that you, you entertained angels unaware. Uh, the whole point behind all of this is simple. Be loving, be hospitable, be courteous, and be kind. But notice, if you would, three very simple observations. One, this passage may it seemed to me, and I think it probably does, serve as a passing reference to Abraham, to Lot, and the angels of Genesis chapter 18 and 19. And what happened on that occasion? Remember, we talked about that passage back in January. We talked about it in March, and we made reference to it in either April or May as well. If you can remember back that far, Abraham and Lot succeeded in showing hospitality to angels unaware to themselves. They didn't know who they, they thought it was men. Remember we talked about that whole notion that the angels did not show up and say, hey, I'm an angel, I'm here to assist you. That's not the way that it worked. It just looked like a, a human being. Uh, the Hebrews passage is also written to first century Christians. 
So let me speculate a little bit further and then use two possible questions as well uh, with not giving you answers. Uh, One of the great things about preaching is asking questions and not giving answers because sometimes in preaching or teaching, it's just the questions that are enough to get the point across. But the first of those questions is, is it possible that angels appeared as humans in the first century during the early days of the church? And is it possible that once those early days ended, that such occurrences ended too. And the, the, I think we have to say, well, yes, that's possible. I, I don't know. I do know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that the era of spiritual gifts was, was rapidly coming to a close. Is it possible that in the same silo uh, or category of spiritual gifts, you also had angels who were actively involved in the lives of Christians? Uh, you have Philip, in Acts chapter 8, who, of course, is approached by an angel who says, I want you to go and preach to this Ethiopian eunuch and other examples in Old and New Testaments as well. And let me suggest to you, thirdly, that the existence of angels as humans was part of this era of spiritual gifts that we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was going to come to a rapid close uh, very quickly in the first century, the point that I made just a couple of moments ago. I want to end with one final question that has uh, the uh, complexity to have a couple of sermons on its own, and I would invite you to do your own study on this. But what about judging angels? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is yet another interesting or intriguing passage. And so let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So you've asked a lot of questions tonight without giving definitive answers. And again, that's the luxury of being able to, to teach in this particular format. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says in verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? We talked about this uh, just a couple of months ago in our study of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? There's another question. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Well, again, this is one of those occasions where it's important for us to remember what was going on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the context here. What was happening? These early saints, these Christians were having uh, significant difficulties with one another. And it seems as if they were publicly suing one another and failing to settle their differences privately. And if that were to happen at the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ or whatever congregation you may be a part of, and word got out that uh, Member Smith is suing Member Jones because of this particular wrong or offense that was done, and we're taking each other to court. I grew up in an era where the highlights of the local county newspaper was reading through who was suing who, and it was published for everyone to see. Uh, in Hendricks County. You could see who was suing who for what and what the purposes were. And, and every once in a while, I'd say, oh, I know that person. <laughs> and that was always the, the way of knowing what was going on in the community. But the fact of the matter is, is doing so was 
shall we say, bad publicity for the church. That's not good publicity for us, right? We do not want the world to see us as a group of people who bicker with one another and fight each other. And if we have a difference with one another, Paul says, go to that person. There's New Testament outlines for doing so and deal with it. It seems to me that when he says, do you not know, verse three, that we shall judge angels, that there are two major ways of looking at the passage or making sense of it. And I'll conclude with these two and then a very broad uh, concluding to the whole series, a couple of statements. And that is number one, in thinking about the ways that we judge angels, that Paul is referencing a future event wherein saints still have some role in judging angels. So it's something that will happen down the road, some would suggest. It is generally agreed to that the angels judged would be the evil angels and not God's righteous messengers. Because we know there are good angels and we know that there are bad angels. We proved that back in lesson number four or five, back in April, May, and June, when we talked about the origin of Satan. In fact, hell is reserved for the devil and blank, blank, his angels. And so hell, uh, I always think is interesting. It never is it said, it is true that it is reserved for those who are unrighteous. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, for example, 22, for example. But it is a place that is uniquely prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, consider, if you would, just two passages here very quickly. One of those is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, particularly verse 12. But we'll read verse 11 before we uh, draw our lesson to a close tonight. Paul writes to Timothy uh, in this very powerful yet uh, short letter. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11, this is a faithful saying. If we die with him, we shall also live with him. And then verse 12 says, if we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Notice where it says we will reign with him. Just kind of put that in your head and just let that sit there for the next 30 seconds. While also considering Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, where again, we see pulled back the the lens Uh, or we see a clearer lens or a viewpoint of heaven and of judgment. And in verse 21, he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Some see Romans chapter eight, verse 17 for a more complete or a fuller explanation of this. But we need to acknowledge that reigning with Christ isn't the same thing as judging like God. We are going to reign, R-E-I-G-N. We are going to have that, uh, not power, but that privilege, I think is a more appropriate way of saying so. But we are not going to be the judge like God. But are we judgmental of others in the way that we live? Do we judge others? And the answer is yes. In the way that we, someone once said, be, be a judge, but don't be guilty of judgmentalism. And I think that's a good way of putting that, of understanding, for example, Matthew chapter 7, the first seven verses. But the point that I'm trying to make simply is this, is that we are going to be with God in a place of judgment in that when we live our lives righteously, others see it 
and will be judged according to our deeds. Which brings me to a second observation, and that is Paul here is describing the then and the now uh, present practice of faithful living, which is what I was referencing just a second or so ago, which in terms uh, and in turn judges those who do wrong, both angelic and human. The very fact that you are here tonight, you are casting judgment. You understand what I'm saying by that, hopefully. That I'm here worshiping a God that my neighbor doesn't believe in, and therefore I'm casting judgment. Now, I'm not saying that they're dirty, rotten, horrible people, but they're not living righteously because they're not worshiping God too. Uh, they didn't come to partake of the Lord's Supper. They don't, uh, they've never been baptized. They don't read their Bibles and study to figure out what is necessary in order to do what is correct. Turn over, if you would, to one final passage in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 41. This will be the last passage of the evening, and I appreciate your patience so very much. But in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 41, and we'll read verse 42. Here's a, a, a statement. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. So a greater than Jonah and a greater than Solomon. The characters that Jesus here notes are dead, yet they provide the perfect venue or avenue for judging these first century Pharisees. And so the conclusion that it seems to me the idea of judging angels is that by the way of our righteous living and our righteous choices, we judge those who do wrong as doing wrong. We appreciate that the Corinthians needed to understand this before they took their brother to court, which is what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is all about in the first place. Hopefully that makes sense, the argument that I'm presenting. But it's something that I think we need to appreciate that we may or may not fully know the role of angels today or of angels tomorrow. Are there angels that assist us today? You'll have to answer that for yourself. We can have that discussion. I know of some Christians who are present with us tonight who have, have had conversations privately with me, and I'll keep those conversations private that would attest to the existence of angels in this particular lifetime. Uh, and I've had other conversations with Christians as well where they felt like uh, that it was some sort of assistance. We, we know that God assists us. We know that he helps us. We know the Holy Spirit is there to help us. Is it also possible that God could choose to use his angels to do the same? We're trying to understand them better. And I appreciate all the very kind words that you have shared with me and all the uh, courteous words that you've shared with me over the last eight or nine months as we've investigated this together. I hope that it helps you to understand them better. If you get nothing else out of the message tonight, uh, get this, that we know for sure that angels will rejoice over your choice uh, to do what the Lord has asked you to do. And we'll rejoice as well. And one day we'll be with the angels, at least it seems to me, in heaven. Uh, I, don't, I don't see any reason why angels would not exist 
post-judgment, but we'll be with angels and together in a giant chorus say, God, you are indeed great. They're doing that at this very moment. We are doing so as well. We invite you to to serve God as well. If you are here and not a Christian, uh, this is an opportunity for you to come to the place uh, not that this place is, is, is special, but this is a special people and we serve a special God who provides us with a special life-saving, salvation-providing gospel. And that allows us to have hope. And we'd be glad to baptize you tonight. If you're here and you're not living uh, correctly, why not give the angels something to rejoice about and give us something to rejoice about as well? And I'm not being flippant about that to say that's the only reason that you would repent. But we certainly would rejoice over your choice to do what is right moving forward. If we can help you in any way, let us know while together we stand, while we sing.